When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Lowdown with Brave Mama. I am your host, Steph Thompson. And today we are talking with someone who I met through a mutual friend for a totally different reason than one day after many businessy type conversations, it came up that we had something in common. We were both mums to little kids. Yep, we were wives. Yes, we were social change advocates. Yes, but as it turns out, we were both living with pelvic organ prolapse, which led us to have very different conversations. And today's chat is with Sarah Prime. It is going to be a two-part series We talk with Sarah about her pre-surgery journey with prolapse. Then the plan is to catch up again and check in to see how Sarah's going, but to also share her experience with surgery to help others who may be about to embark on something similar. So today I've grabbed a cup of Madame Flavors, lemongrass, lime and ginger to warm the soul because Sarah Prime is just that, a warm, caring, and giving soul. Just remember, you can also grab 20% off your first order with Madam Flavor when you sign up to their newsletter. I do know that their Christmas tea is selling super fast, so you may want to check out their website today. The links will be in the show notes. So let's get into today's episode with Sarah Prime. Welcome, Sarah. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. So let's kick off, right? So we we quickly discovered that we both have pelvic organ prolapse. Would you like to share a little bit of your journey on how that came to be? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'll start by saying I didn't even know what pelvic organ prolapse was or that I was a pop person. This was news to me. I didn't know it was a thing. I just figured I'd had a bit of a rough ride and had some bits where they weren't supposed to be. And then after speaking with yourself, I realized this is something that a lot of women go through. And I felt so relieved to know that there was a discussion happening around how pelvic organ prolapse could be handled and how my life might be different. So I guess um, my story began with my first pregnancy. We found out very early on in the piece that we were going to be having um, a high-risk pregnancy because um, Tex, our son, who is now um, five, was an IUG uh, baby. He had a very, very low PAPA protein, almost non-existent. And so it was likely that our pregnancy wouldn't go full term. Um, There was a possibility that... Sorry, Sarah, what's an... 
Oh, yep, sorry. What was that pregnancy that you just saw? What's an IUG baby? An IUGR baby is um, in utero restricted growth. So they're a very, very okay. small baby. Um, they're not getting the proteins and the nutrients that they need. Um, there could be a range okay. of reasons for this. I think in my particular instance, my placenta wasn't um, doing its job very well. And this PAPA protein was a new thing that they were just starting to screen for um, from what I can understand. So um, I came to learn that it's pretty vital for a child's development. Not having a strong PAPA can lead to all sorts of um, different life-altering conditions. You know, you could be born with spina bifida, um, mult- oh, right. uh, not multiple sclerosis, muscular degenerative diseases, all sorts of different things could go wrong. Um, or the pregnancy may not be viable at all. So right from Which the outset, you, um, yeah. there were clues that, you know, things weren't going to be normal. But being our first pregnancy, we had nothing to compare this to. We didn't really know what questions we should be asking or what things we should be preparing ourselves for. We just did a little bit of a woo yeah. bit of a fist pump whenever we had <laughs> a, um, you know, a visit with our OBGYN that, that said that things were progressing well. Um, there were a few hiccups along the way, you know, where we had to go to Adelaide and, um, you know, have extra scans and things like that. Um, but to us, it was normal to get scans kind of every other week. And when we finally reached the 30 week mark, we were just stoked that we had gotten that far. Um, what ended up happening was, um, I was induced, uh, around about 34 weeks, um, we basically had been having scans every second day and if the baby hadn't um, grown from three consecutive scans, he was going to be whipped out. So any time from 30 weeks onwards pretty much this this measuring process happened. He, um, yeah. I was induced three times in the end um, to, to get him out and uh-huh. um, he, because he was so small, he wasn't handling the labour very well. So they went to rush me off for a emergency C-section. They gave me the spinal block after I'd been in labour for about 11 hours. And then um, as I was being wheeled out of the room, because there were a couple of trauma surgeries um, for mothers having emergency seizures that got rushed in before me, finally the anaesthetist became oh. available. I was going into surgery and as they were wheeling me out of the room, I said, um, something weird's happening. I don't know what it is because I can't feel, but something weird is happening between my legs right now. You Can know. someone have a look? And they said I had started crowning. So I had to deliver this baby oh. not feeling anything, um, not feeling oh, my contractions, not knowing what was going on. But um, the problem was Tex had been stuck in my hips for so long, being so little I couldn't push him out, that they needed to use forceps to deliver him. Now, when um, your entire room is full of medical people trying to get a baby out of you, the last thing that you stop and go is what were the consequences of this be? But apparently having a forceps delivery means that there is a high risk of internal damage to you. Um, By this stage, I was just relieved that Tex had been born and that he was earthside, he was being treated, he was with his dad and um, that I was going to, you know, be okay and hopefully Tex was going to be okay. What I didn't yeah. know was that having a forceps delivery to get him into the world safely meant that I would have complications moving forward. So when I became pregnant um, two years later, or not quite two years later, with our daughter, I realised quite early on in the pregnancy that I had a prolapse. Things were pushing out that shouldn't be. 
Um, I, <laughs> how did you discover it? Like, how did you know? Well, I felt like I was sitting on a basketball most of the time. Um, trying to go to the toilet, I felt like I was like my bow was going around a corner, like it was an L shape. And um, I would get really, really constipated, I guess, because of that. Um, yeah, I would yeah. have um, bladder incontinence, which I, I just assumed everyone had that was pregnant. You know, there's a lot of pressure going on down there and, you know, maybe other people just go through this as well and they don't complain about it. I don't know. Like it's normal. Yeah, exactly. Um, imagine my shock and horror to one day catch sight of what I looked like from the outside when I was getting dressed and sitting on the end of my bed and I looked up at our mirror and I went, whoa, that didn't used to be on the outside. <laughs> that's, What's that? That's kind, of, um, that's kind of weird. And so I started talking to my um, gynecologist about it, my obstetrician about it, and she said, yep, you've got a, a pelvic prolapse and um, it doesn't mean that you can't deliver this baby normally. It doesn't mean that you can't carry this baby normally, but it does mean that you're going to have some um, have your work cut out for you after the delivery. And so, sure. and how pregnant were you at that point? Sorry, how pregnant were you at that point? Um, gosh, I would have been somewhere between four and six months. I couldn't tell you exactly where I was. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah sure. So that second trimester. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty uncomfortable for me. I remember thinking to myself, well, either I feel a lot older in this pregnancy or I'm a lot less fit because I felt a lot more pressure yeah, sure. than normal. Obviously, I was carrying a much heavier child than last time as well. Tex was born um, 1.89 kilos and this baby was that already, you know, halfway along. So um, yeah, yeah, it was a yeah. pretty different experience. But also with less, less appointments with this pregnancy, I didn't probably have the opportunity to ask those questions that I should have been asking. Is this normal? Um, how should I be handling it? And um, I continued on, you know, just making jokes about how I felt like my cervix had gravel rash because it was dragging on the ground and all these sorts of things, you know, just trying to make light of the situation. Um, and eventually um, after... Scout was born and she was, um, yeah, almost exactly twice the, the body weight that Tex was at 3.6 kilos. Um, I started seeing a physio and seeking treatment for the prolapse. Um, it took, you know, a lot of exercises, um, a lot of different size pessaries. I tried, you know, ring pessaries. I tried cube pessaries. Um, I tried doing exercises um, with those jade eggs that I'd heard things about and couldn't even hold yeah. one in. Like I, I was like, well, how are you supposed to do exercises and they just fall out when you stand up? Like how do you do this? Yeah, yeah. And I just really thought this is, this is not cool. I don't want to live like this. And I asked about it and I was um, told that, look, surgery is an option but it's, it should be a last resort if you can try something else first, try everything else first because if you have surgery. Which it sounds like you did. Sorry? <laughs> Which it sounds like you did try yeah. everything else first. I did. Um, I was given even estrogen suppositories to try and use estrogen to help my pelvic floor to contract again. Um, it, so was, your, was the second baby delivered vaginally as well yeah. or was it a second C-section? No, the second was a vaginal birth as well. Um, this time I deliberately had no pen medication cause I wanted to feel how hard I was pushing. I wanted to feel the contractions, um, 
yeah, I didn't have gas. I didn't have anything. I wanted to feel like I was in control of my body. And I also knew yeah, I didn't want to deliver on my back because I felt like I didn't have control of my core um, when I was um, laboring with text. The first time. That's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I had said that to my husband at the time. I remember telling him, I don't want to deliver on my back because I feel like I can't engage my core properly. I wanted to deliver, you know, on all fours or squatting or something like that. But because yeah. of the pregnancy and the distressed labor, I had cords all over me and I was sort of strapped into a bed so that they could keep the Dopplers on and all the different things going. Yeah, of course. Um, so with Scout, I did the exact opposite. I you know, was up on my knees on my bed holding on and um, trying to really listen to my body and feel my body. And things did come back a little bit after she was born and there wasn't so much weight bearing down on the prolapse, but it never, ever returned to normal. Um, estrogen didn't really um, return things to normal. The pessaries just fell out whenever I went to the toilet. I couldn't use tampons anymore or anything like that. It was just really not a pleasant experience. And one of the the worst things that I, I think probably a lot of um, people with pelvic organ prolapse will tell you is that sex was no longer an enjoyable intimacy. It was you felt... Um, like it was just either uncomfortable or painful or just plain wrong because your organs weren't where they used to be and you could feel things that you didn't want to feel. Like you could feel your bowel in your vagina and you wondered, is my husband feeling this as well? It's just not fun. Yeah. Can he feel my can he feel my poo? Yeah. 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 Yep, that's yep. pretty much and it. As if they're gonna tell you. As if they're gonna tell you. I remember once asking my husband um whether or not it felt different after um having children and I I knew, of course, that it would, but I probably asked a question that I already didn't want to know the answer to and in a way I wished that I hadn't asked. Um, I think he was pretty gentle Ignorance. with me with his replies. Like, yeah, of course it's different. You've just had a baby. But um, in my mind I'm thinking, is having sex with me like throwing a hot dog down a hallway? Like is it bad? Is it really terrible? <laughs> We've, we think the same thing and I'm pretty sure that all of our listeners who are tuned in is like, yep, I've had that yeah. thought too. Does my husband just think it's like the I could throw anything down there and it yeah. doesn't touch the side? You either yeah. feel like it's completely blocked off because of what's in your bowel at the time or you feel like it's just <laughs> a giant void in there um, where everything's just fallen over on top of itself. And either way, I've it's- actually had um, – oh, sorry, oh, Sarah, that's sorry. okay. I was going to say, I actually had a, um, a physio during the process of trying to diagnose what it was and she had her hand up in there and she said to me, oh, it's just like the abyss. Yeah. There's so much going on in there. I don't know what's what. And I just think, God, if she can feel that with her hand, imagine what my husband can feel. Mm. Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a psychological turnoff and it makes you really not want to get intimate in that way with your partner anymore, which is crushing because you yeah. need that kind of love and adoration to tell you you're still the person they fell in love with. But, um, yeah, so that that was really not... I can tell that struck a chord with you. Yeah, yeah it was not it's fun. Hard, isn't it? But I think what's even harder um, is the everyday life. You look the same to people on the outside and so I would be going out on the weekends to our football and netball club, which is what you do when you live in a rural area. That's your social network. It's your social connectivity. It's your relief from the isolation of rural living. Um, we would go out and people would say, Sarah, why aren't you playing netball anymore? Why don't you do an umpiring shift? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? 
And in the end, I would take on jobs around the club to, to give myself a reason for turning up. Otherwise, I would just stop going to football and netball. Yeah, I didn't want to say to course. them what I was really feeling. I used to make jokes about, oh, I can't run without wetting myself or if I shout and call out for the ball, I might wet myself because, you know, that was a common thing for people who have children. But I didn't think for one minute um, that there might be other people at that club going through the same things that I was. But on the outside, we feel like we've got to hold it together for other people. We feel like um, other people make it look so easy. They're running around chasing their kids at the footy there you know, still turning up to school working bees or to fundraising events and things like the that. Canteen. And here I was struggling yeah. to climb in and out of my car or if I moved suddenly I'd have to go inside and change my underwear or I'd have to make sure that um, I knew where a toilet would be, you know, just so that... In- Did you ha- Do you have the app? We've got the app. No. So there's an app now. <laughs> no. Wait, wait, before we go anywhere, like... Okay, where's the toilet toilet at the app? How far is it? Can you park next to it? Like, you know, it's funny when you used to pack the baby bag, you pack the nappies and the spare clothes and the wipes and then your spare undies and your spare clothes for you. And you had a set of three for everyone. um, That's right. But you get used to it, right? Like it just becomes part of the norm. It's really hard to think that people don't have to do that. That's right. And I, I remember thinking to myself wearing leggings, thinking, oh, my God, can they, tear out, can they tell I'm wearing the special undies with these? I hope my butt doesn't look big in this. But really, you know, vanity is, is not nearly as important as health. So <laughs> you've just got to have yeah, it's gone out um, reassurance that you're okay in whatever you choose to do and however you um, need to feel reassured you've you've just got to take that measure of self-care and not worry about the way it looks I think because it I think that staying socially connected is more important than um, yeah. than that did you find that you kind of signed up for jobs where you were sitting down you know doing yeah. admin type stuff and so that you didn't have to be walking around and it was a bit safer I guess yeah I do I remember before uh, like you know when I was pregnant with my first child I was helping a coach and my job was like the the motivator of the team or the, you know, try and get them mentally prepared during the game and to razz them up while they were playing in this netball game. And I would do a lot of shouting. Well, once text was worn, I could no longer do that. I had, I had to say, look, I'm sorry, I can't do this job anymore. And so I would pick best players instead or do something that was with a pen and paper. And I think I ended up taking a job on the committee for that reason. So I still had a reason to turn up to the netball. So I didn't have to have these other active sort of roles. But, it, yeah, it struck me as odd that people still would ask, like, when are you going to come back to play? Like, you know, Scout's nearly four now. When are you going to come back to play? And I've taken this new approach where I've actually just told them now, actually my internal organs aren't where they're supposed to be. I can't play sport. I physically am incapable of playing sport um, without great discomfort, without a sense of embarrassment, without great impracticalities. Like, I don't want to have to travel on a weekend wearing a nappy just to get through a game of netball so so I've finally um gone and seen someone and said look this isn't a quality of life I'm going to look at the road of surgery what does that look like for me and yep it's been um, a really interesting journey so far so were you able to tell us a little bit more about that so first of all um how were you officially diagnosed? Because I do know a lot of women go on that journey and they can have a diagnosis from a grade one rectocele all the way up to a grade four, three compartment prolapse, depending on who you see, depending on what type of protocols they follow to assess you. 
So how did you get to your diagnosis and then meet, uh, you know, have that discussion about surgery? Because like me, I know that there's no current surgery available for me. So I guess it would be helpful to know, well, why is it available to other women? Like, you know, tell us a little bit. I think I've asked five questions. No, that's okay. (laughs) Um, So initially seeing my OBGYN, after the the birth she was she was more active during the actual pregnancy itself and beyond that she was wanting to refer me to the physio which I can understand but what that meant was there wasn't as much of an internal examination ongoing with a doctor so the physio was actually the one that told me you've got a grade two prolapse um and my interpretation of the real issue was that I had um a bowel prolapse and that that was causing or that my bowel was causing the biggest issue with the prolapse, I should say. Um, and so our focus became on um, having really attentive routine where gut health is um, considered. So, yes. um, you know, drinking yes. lots of smoothies and things like that. Having um, had no success after a couple of years with the physio and going back to the doctor and not getting what I knew I needed attention-wise, I actually changed GPs. I went to a male doctor and I just said to him, I'd like to be referred to a gynecologist, please. Um, One in Adelaide, because I live in a country area, there is a limited number of people that I can see. Um, But I need someone who's a specialist in prolapse and also in menopause because lots of the things that are happening to my body um, are causing me a fair bit of lifestyle issues and emotional well-being issues. Um, so that was why I needed to see this particular person. And so he said, yep, no problems. I got referred. I had about a six-month waiting time to get in to see her. And when I did and I had this um, introductory consult, if you like, it was such a relief Um, I could see almost the eyes of the doctor welling up as I was telling her my story and saying, you know, what does it mean when you don't want to live like this anymore? You physically would rather not live than live like this. And she's just sort of said, right, we've got to get this sorted. We went and had a physical exam. And when we came back, she said, Sarah, no amount of exercising, no amount of estrogen treatment, no amount of any other medication could change what you've got. Um, You've got a pretty severe prolapse. Um, your uterus is down inside of your vagina. It's past the halfway point. Um, you should keep doing your pelvic floor exercises, but that is for conditioning for recovering from surgery because that is the only thing we can do to fix you. Um, she said that it's likely that I would need more than one surgery, um, that it would mean I'd have to have a hysterectomy but leave my ovaries in, um, fix the vaginal oh, as well. so you don't go into menopause? Well, that's the thing. She she was curious about um, the symptoms for menopause because one of the things that the female GP that I had did was put me back on the pill um, and I hadn't had a period for six months on the pill and um, the gynecologist said, well, all of these other side effects that you're having, you know, um, whether it's night sweats, restless legs, cognitive decline, all of these things should have subsided if you were back on the pill, if it was menopause and nothing changed. So she said, your doctor should have referred you to a physician. Have you seen one yet? And it was actually her who pushed me to go and um, ask for another referral to a physician. So I'm 
also seeing someone about that. But it looks like there's no um, early menopause, that I'm perimenopausal, but that there are other issues at play. So I've now got a surgery scheduled for the 24th of this month uh, where I'll be having a laparoscopic hysterectomy, leaving my ovaries in, which is great because it means I won't sort of go cold turkey hormonal. Um, I'll have um, my uterosacral ligament um, repaired and that'll be the vaginal vault suspension and also an interior repair of, um, so that's the front wall of the vagina, um, which they'll have to do internally, like going up through the vagina. So that's a pretty big surgery. Um, Is that the first one and then the second one is something else? Yes, that's right. Wow, okay, so that first one is big. Yeah, the second one is um, if the first surgery creates incontinence issues that are even worse than what I have at the moment because what happens when they bring that um, vaginal vault back up into place and the bladder um, sort of sits back up where it's supposed to, there's no longer this big kink in the urethra. And so if that gets straightened out, then you kind of turn on like a tap when you don't want to. And she said, so you may need a second surgery where they'll put a sling under that urethra and hold it, um, sort of hold it up so that you can therefore prevent yourself from, um, yeah, from having incontinence. So that I've just discovered this week can't be done at the same time as the gynecologist surgery. The urologist will want to do it later on. Um, primarily because if they do them at the same time, it can be done. It's it's not an issue. But um, once they've pulled things back up into place and things are tight again like they would be before you'd had your first child, there's no way of knowing if it's too tight, if you stitch one thing into place and then you come and put this sling in. What if it's not settled properly yet too and much. then your sling is too tight? Yeah. And so what they want to happen is that you recover from that first surgery the scar tissue develops everything settles into place and it gets whatever kind of elasticity it has left in it Um, and then you put the sling in so that you know you're not sort of yanking it up higher than it needs to be Um, yeah does that make sense it does uh it does to me because I have been talking about this type of thing for probably oh for three to four years so I know a little bit of terminology but for the people who may be just hearing this for the very first time correct me if I'm wrong but basically they are lifting your uterus back up into the pelvic floor and reattaching it somewhere no they're taking the uterus out completely oh okay sorry yeah I totally missed that so they so that's what the hysterectomy see what I mean women and their anatomy I just don't we don't know enough even about our own bodies. I was joking the other day about Gwyneth Paltrow not knowing what a vulva and a vagina was, but then inside I was like, neither did I really. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it is tricky. There's a lot of new things to learn. I've had to, I've had to Google what um, the USL is, which is that ligament that they're repairing. But, um, yeah, the hysterectomy is the removal of the actual uterus. And that that's bizarre that they can do that laparoscopically, like keyhole surgery just pluck it out um and that blows my mind a little bit but um and then do you have any other prolapses sitting on top of your uterus like do you have your bladder or anything coming down as well are they going to have to put that back up well that's what I don't quite understand and I don't think they'll know fully until they get in there um they do have a pelvic ultrasound um from 
when they were testing me um, for menopause. So they haven't done a pelvic ultrasound specific to this. I guess I'll do that right before the surgery. But um, so what they've got. Is that the urodynamics testing? Um, that will be right before the second surgery. Yeah. So they'll have me in for yeah, a day so of surgery. They um, they'll make me record a bladder diary for three days. I'll have the day of surgery. They'll inject me with their glow-in-the-dark fluids and um, do yep. a whole bunch of x-rays. They'll figure out how well my bladder is or isn't doing its job and through urethra and whether or not I'm passing um, a high enough volume of um, urine and then they'll work out how they'll address this this second surgery. So, um, yeah, that'll be done by a separate surgeon to the gynecologist. So that person that is a, yeah, a specialist in the field of urology. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, I guess it would be silly to ask how you're feeling about it. Obviously, you'd be quite concerned. But you're, and, and from what I know of you two, you would have Googled everything can be so super organized and know <laughs> and understand what's what because not only curious, but you obviously want to understand what's happening to you so you can process that. But that all aside, um, pre-surgery, I think it's probably important to know how are you feeling yeah. about all of this. Yeah, you're right. I, I, um, I feel relieved, I guess, is the first answer. I feel relieved to have one of the great unknowns removed. There are too many of these balls up in the air of things that I don't know and I'm waiting for them to land. And this is one that I can catch now and I can take it out of the equation and go, okay, well, this is a problem we can deal with. It's got a name, it's got a process that I'm going to work through and it's got doctors who know what they're doing. It doesn't have to be a worry of mine anymore. I can plan for that. I can organise to within an inch of my life and that's what you do. You try and mm-hmm. control the things that are within your control because there is so much that isn't in your control. The concern that I feel about the surgery isn't the risks of the surgery. It's not the high failure rate. It's not um, the going under anaesthetic and, you know, what can go wrong there. The fear that I have is that they're going to get into my body and go, oh, shit, we were not expecting that, and that they're going to have to do other things that they didn't expect or that they're going to have to call in a doctor and say, her bowel is in a serious way here. We need to fix that as well while we're here. Um, It's kind of like waiting for the other shoe to drop. But that I think is probably an irrational fear. I think if things were that messed up inside, then hopefully that pelvic ultrasound would have shown them. Um, And if not, then whatever testing they do in the lead up to that first surgery while they've got me under, then they'll have a good look around. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So So, um, I do do have some concerns, but um, I think for the most part, I see it as a really positive step and I'm looking forward to the recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So just on that, I know you mentioned a high failure rate. Have they told you what a you know the percentage could be for this type of surgery for you? Yeah, they have. They've said in my age bracket and the extent of what they can tell from a physical examination, there's probably a 30% failure rate, which, you know, a glass half full person would say is a 70% success rate. But what it boils Absolutely. down to is how well you allow your body to recover and rip and how well you rehabilitate and not how well just you recover from this and bounce back but how you change your lifestyle to make sure that you don't put yourself in a position where there is going to be unnecessary strain on you 
And so I've been having conversations with um, one of my friend's mums actually who's had this operation three times. The first time that she wow, had it. three times. Yeah. The first time she had it, she had the prolapse quite young. She didn't um, – she had another baby after the surgery had been done oh, and so therefore yeah. needed to have it done again. Yeah. And then the third time was because um, she – her bowel prolapse happened um, separate to to the first time. So it was two different operations. Around really. menopause? Pardon? Was it around menopause? Because they, yes. you know, they tell us that menopause can um, cause prolapse to become worse or more evident. Yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, I, I imagine she would have been around that age with the third one, so it's quite possible that that has been the case. Um, but she has been wonderful to talk to about the lifestyle changes. And I've sort of said, how do you, having gone through this three times, you must be so cognizant of not doing something to your body which is going to cause you to have to go and have more surgeries. And she said, well, yeah, I am, and I'm a lot smarter too. Um, you know, when you're younger, you... You'd, what was her top tip? Yeah, well, you, you've just got to um, not put yourself in a position of strain. So she has a trolley which she uses to carry things around. She doesn't... Um, she doesn't lift bags and things like that herself. If she does, if she's at the shops and she's doing the groceries, she tells the store assistant to please only half fill the bags. Um, when she gets home, she waits for someone else to come and unload the car for her. She's a grandmother of many kids and so she has taught all of the grandkids um, to come and climb on her rather than her pick them up. So she'll sit down or kneel and they'll come and climb up her, which I think is just beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's taught them to climb into their car seat so she doesn't have to lift them into their car seat. Um, Sarah, I honestly feel like you're telling my life story. This is exactly what I've had to do with my children and my son is three but he acts as if he's seven. He has to physically because I can't. I make him climb on a chair to give me a hug if he, you know, if I, he, he cottoned on, you see. He doesn't like mummy sitting down. He wants to be picked up like all the other kids. Yeah. So I make him climb up on a chair, sit on the table yep. and hug him there. So I'm kind of still standing. But all the things we have to do, all these workarounds we have to do to survive. Yeah, this is going to be the new know? norm. And I, I find myself thinking about things like, well, I travel for work a lot. How am I going to lift my bag if I pack a suitcase? How am I going to lift it off of the the suitcase carousel at the airport i can get a trolley but how am i going to get it onto the trolley and the it's 10 kilos isn't it yeah 10 kilos max i think some say five yeah the 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 literature often says don't lift anything heavier than a full kettle while you're in recovery after that i'm not sure um but those are all the questions that i'll be asking and re-asking and re-asking because they can say one thing to me before the operation but until they've seen what state i'm in um you know, I'm going to ask them, is it, is there anything that's new? Is there anything that's different? Is there anything else I need to be aware of? But do you know what I think frightens me the most? Well, not frightens me, that saddens me the most is my surgery is a week from today. And on Sunday, it will physically be the last time that I ever pick my children up. And I will do that. I'll pick them up and I'll hold them knowing that that'll be the last time and I'll still be able to hug them and cover them but I'll never lift them again and I think that realization is scarier and sadder for me than not ever being able to bear children again um so yeah that's probably the emotional part for me you know they're still little kids they want to be held by their parents 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit raw. Yeah. I'm really sorry, Sarah. That's, um, you got me there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't expect yeah. to just well up on your show like that. Sorry. It's, um, no, I actually, um, am grateful that we can share these raw emotions that I'm really certain that we are all going through, but have to have that tough, tough mother exterior that, you know, we soldier on and we ask for these kids. Yeah. We wish them into this world and we birthed them. And so this is just part of it. And I think with that old school thinking makes us feel like we can't actually be vulnerable when I've never been more vulnerable in my life. You know, hearing a mum not being able to hold her children, breaking her heart is horrible. And these are the things I wish we start rewriting the textbooks for the specialists. These are the conversations we need to share in those textbooks, the ones that say, Pelvic cork and prolapse is not painful. Pelvic cork and prolapse can be fixed with Kegels. Pelvic cork and prolapse is actually not that bad. Just get on with it. And um, we need to rewrite those history books and those medical texts because. Yeah, I don't think the person who says pelvic organ prolapse is not painful understands the context of social pain either. Try and tell someone who's wet their pants in a very public space that it's not painful. Okay, it may not have hurt at that time, but I'm pretty sure they felt their emotional pain stronger than anyone who's you know having physical pain but also yeah. it is physically painful 100%. too yeah I know I shared in my book um, something I never thought I'd really say out loud is that the day I shit myself and um, when I say that quite nonchalant but I have to say it that way so that I don't get really caught up in how embarrassed and ashamed I was I didn't even tell my husband so I did it I was changing my son's nappy kneeling on the floor as you do because you can't have a change table with a baby in prolapse um and I had just had a nighty on and then I got up and I thought I saw a little poo nugget on the floor <laughs> I was like hang on he didn't do a poo it's only a wee where did that come from and I was like oh my god I think that was me. I think that was mine. I, I'm not sure, but I, I didn't feel it. I don't know. It was there. I didn't even fluff or anything. It just, poof, there it comes. I remember not talking to anyone, but literally pacing my backyard, waiting to call my um, urogynecologist to say, what the hell? I think I just pooed myself. And his response to me was, oh yeah, I probably should have told you that. That can happen. It's okay. It's normal. It's part of it. What, it doesn't what feel okay though and it doesn't feel normal when it happens to you. <laughs> no. I eventually got the guts to tell my husband and after quite a few wines probably a week later or something and he was, I think he, he just held me. He was horrified because I was so embarrassed to not even share it with him. Um, but now I can talk about it and I just want other women to feel that, yeah, it, it's not normal but it's common. And it, this is what I want to change the language to. It might be common that these things are happening and women might be pooing their pants and weeing their pants, but it doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel like the normal I used to have. No, it doesn't. You know. Um, and I often wonder if we knew all of these things were a part and parcel of um, childbearing and childrearing that there is a chance of these things happening, would I have still chosen to have kids? because there are plenty of other challenges that come with having kids. Would this on top of it be the straw that broke the camel's back? Would I have gone, nope, not for me, sorry. But, you know, when you feel a child's arms around you, that that's a love that you would never want to live without once you've had it. And so I guess that answers my question. Um, 
A hundred percent. And you never want to wish that your children never came to you, no. but you just wish you didn't have to live with this. And I think that's how where the lines get blurred. We had that very conversation um, in our house not long ago. Would we have had children knowing this could have happened? And I said, I can't actually answer that, but I want to say I want for Elsie to have the decision that if this is a possible risk for her, that, that the use of forceps or, or other interventions like a vacuum could cause this damage to her, that she would have the option to say, can I have a cesarean, please? And not be judged for that and be accepted to do that. Um, not too posh to push in any of all of that political rubbish, but just that she was assessed as an individual during her pregnancy to say, hey, listen, big baby or whatever, whatever the risk factors are, um, you may want to consider that. But unfortunately, even... As of yesterday, I've received an article from the Queensland government who are pushing towards, they're calling it normal birth, vaginal birth over cesarean sections, quoting that Caesars are too high, the numbers are the numbers are the numbers. And I'm like, why are we talking numbers? I'm not a number, I'm a human being. Mm. And because, <clears throat> pardon me, I didn't get to have that option, I'm just a statistic that no one, it's invisible. I don't count for anyone because no one's actually ever asked me how my vaginal birth went. So, the, you know, all of the data about seasons and things is so skewed. And so with the other 18,000 women in our support group with prolapse because we're not counted. And so it's really, um, yeah, it's a really hard situation that when you try to invoke change, there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of political agenda, but I want to take all that aside and stop throwing statistics at people and just come back to the human element, come back to our conversation yeah. over this cup of tea that says we just want to hold our children. Mm. That's all. <laughs> and I guess, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you said what it boils down to is the fact that we're all humans and we need a human element, we need a human approach. And to me that means giving everyone the right to make a decision for how they want things to happen and recognising that everyone is unique and that the same situation for two different people can turn out differently and that's okay, whether it's for good yes. or for bad, if it's their choice, if they feel like they've had some degree of control over it, that could be the thing that makes the difference for them because so much of the the trauma and the distress that people go through um, in in bearing and raising children is the stuff that you don't see on the outside. It's the emotional stuff and it's the internal physical stuff and the impact of those things on our lives. So the greater the degree of control that we can have over things and the more the knowledge that we have going into them in order to make informed decisions, the better off I think we have to be as a result. Um, because, we, you know, it, it, is, it, it is a tough gig um, carrying a child, delivering a child, raising a child. It is also a tough gig not ever having the ability to do it too, and I don't discount that for a second in talking yes. about the hardships or the or the difficulties because there are plenty of people who would give anything to be in my situation. So I want to acknowledge them and, and um, Thank you know, you. To, to see them and I, in this space too. A hundred percent. And I can talk to that side because that was us for five years. And anyone who made a comment about, oh, I'm so tired or motherhood's really, I think, oh, well, at least you are a mum. Just be grateful. So I have been that mum as well. And now I'm on the other side. I feel like there is a little bit more permission to talk about this as a mum, but like you, I do want to acknowledge that there are women in their journey who all they want 
and they yearn for that motherhood and I respect that space as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's funny because when I talked about the book and what they don't tell you in childbirth, I did um, meet one woman, one who said, oh, you're going to scare women away from having babies. Every other comment I've had, especially from millennials who have read the book, have not reflected that to me personally and said, actually, I didn't know, I didn't even know what forceps were. I didn't know what an episiotomy was. I didn't know you could not choose a cesarean in a public hospital if you wanted to, that you had to go private. Um, and yeah, so I just think it's all about education and, and having these conversations with even those amongst our close circle, mm. you know, your sisters, your aunts, your cousins, your mums, your daughters, um, in a way that's not too confronting but educational. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right and um, it's so important for us to normalise these things, to talk about them, to use the language that helps people to be educated, that helps them to understand those human implications. Um, it's it's you know, as a person going through it right at this point in time, the amount of looking up that I have to do to try and understand what a doctor so effortlessly spews out to you, all of these words that you've never heard of before. Like there's got to be an easier way for me to say this and to explain it to my husband, to my mom and my mother-in-law and my sister and my sister's-in-law. Like For yourself. Yeah, yeah, just to tell them this is what you're going through. That is is a hard part in itself, helping them to understand too. So, yeah, education is critical and normalising those conversations. Yeah, taking the taboo and stigma away from saying the word vagina. And I used to myself say the word vagina, obviously, when writing a book with it in the title, but I couldn't actually say it in front of my dad <laughs> until more recently. And I now I kind of say it more and he blushes less and less. So I think it's also just that um, desensitization around it. It's not a pornographic or a sexual term. It's a, it's a medical term and it's anatomy. Mm. Um, just like it's it's your wrist or it's your eye, yeah. it's it's your vagina, it's your vulva. It's okay, and it's not a dirty word. Um, so yeah, I just uh, it 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 takes time. It does. It does take time. I think I think it's coming. I think the inertia is coming about women being okay to talk more about their bodies and explore their bodies a little bit more. Because I never used to look down there, and I I don't definitely don't now because it's not you know yeah <laughs> anything to look at <laughs> but yeah <laughs> it's a bit scary um it's funny I'll just tell you a funny story I had this friend who was my waxing lady back in the day because uh, I was an athlete and used to you know quite whatever um and she started to not really talk to me and I thought oh what's going on with that she thought I was going to another beautician to be waxed and I was like Oh no, sister, I'm just not going there anymore because I don't, I don't look down there. We don't, nothing happens. So I might as well not have to worry about it. <laughs> Save yourself the money, the time and the pain of the waxing. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, you know what, Sarah, it's been so lovely to chat with you. Before you go, I do have one question from our community, if you wouldn't mind no answering. Um, so we've just got here, what, what was the tipping point for you saying yes to surgery? Mm. Look, there was no doubt in my mind to begin with that I wanted to avoid surgery. I didn't like the idea of um, three months recovery. That's what I had been led to believe it was going to be. Um, the tipping point for me came when I finally got in to see that specialist in Adelaide And she gave me a physical exam and it was thorough 
And she said to me, there is no amount of estrogen that can fix this. There is no amount of Kegels that can fix this. Um, it's not fair for you to be living in the state that you're in. So I think you should really consider surgery as an option. And I think that I just felt seen. And no matter what the climb was going to be like coming back from this, it was going to be worth it because I was going to be in a better place. I was going to be able to lead a more full life and start feeling like a woman again, I think, because right now I just feel a bit like a hermit. So that that visit was definitely the tipping point. But I'll also add to that, it's not going to be a 12-week recovery, Um, certainly not going to be the 18 weeks of the combined um, surgeries, which is what I thought it was going to be to begin with if I had them back-to-back. It's now going to be um, only a a couple of weeks that I won't be driving for because so much of the surgery will be done laparoscopically through keyhole surgery. The first one, Um, So I'm really excited about that. You know, I live rurally, so I need to be able to to mobilise. I need to be able to drive to the bus stop to pick my kids up or, you know, to pick up the groceries and things. Um, And realising that it's actually so much better than I had envisaged in terms of recovery um, has really just solidified the decision that I've made and I can now picture myself coming back so much more quickly. And I've got to be careful probably that I don't um, come back too quickly because that um, period is, you know, so critical to how well the surgery goes and how well you recover and how well your scar tissue um, develops and settles. So I need to make sure that I have a very clear plan in my mind for what I will and won't do and how I will or won't do it to make sure that that recovery time um, is worth its while. Okay. And I'm confident you'll do it. Knowing, having (laughs) spoken to you before, you're that type of woman that's going to ace it. Would it be okay with you if we check back in in a few months' time and see how it went? Yeah. you know, obviously open to, to however you want that to look, but we wish you all the very best and a very speedy recovery. Thank you. Um, go you, very brave. Thank you for sharing your journey with us today. And um, yeah, we'll check back up, check back in with you soon. Thank you. I'd love that, Steph. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. What an amazing journey, right? We are so thankful to Sarah for sharing her story in such an articulate but also very vulnerable way that helps so many of us be able to relate. And I guess, are you someone or do you know someone living with prolapse who is thinking about surgery and repairs? It can be such a scary process to even consider something like this. So you could really help someone today by sharing this episode and this podcast with them. And to do this, you just look for those three little dots on the episode or on the homepage, and there's an option. You can download it, you can share, or you can copy a link. If you click on share an episode, and then all of your contacts will come up and you can just send it to the ones who you think would get some help from this. And if you subscribe or follow to this podcast right now, you'll be notified when part two of this important conversation is published. We wish Sarah all the very best with her surgery and recovery, and we look forward to talking with her again soon. Until next week, 
Bye for now. Brave, my